Before I talk about truthfulness and sila, two of the paramis that Philip mentioned this morning, I want to remind us all that it was almost 24 hours ago that we took the precepts of non-harming on this retreat. So you've been living these precepts for the past 23 or so hours. And I thought it would be interesting to check in with you about your what you've noticed about what it's like to take precepts and live in a community of shared intention where everyone is sharing the same intention. So what have you, I know today has been probably hard for many of you. You've had the usual hindrances of sleepiness, grumpiness, restlessness, boredom, agitation, doubt. I'm sure that's going on. But I'd also like you to look at what you may have been experiencing as some of the benefits of being in silence. What are some of the benefits of living in a community where you can leave something and know that it will not be taken? What are some of the benefits of detox? Because yeah, we know you're all going through detox without your usual sources of stimulation, whether it be coffee or energy drinks or kombucha or your favorite chocolate or all the media stimulation that we're used to now. What are the benefits of that? Letting go of the, those sources of stimulation. So I'd like to hear. Would anybody be willing to say anything they've noticed about some of the benefits? You can't get this wrong. Yes? My daughter who came, and there were scriptures for years. And I came with my mind just wrapped up with them and how they were, right? Et cetera, et cetera. All those She came with the with the remembrance of criticisms from some of her family members, and today they quieted. Her mind quieted. What else have you noticed about being in a community where you are sharing this common intention of silence and non-harming? So great relief that not having to engage in a uh, some kind of conversation about whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Being somebody. Being somebody. What pressure. Yeah. Yes, it's much easier to, it's the picking up the, the thread of what you're working with internally, I'm assuming you mean. Yes, so thank you. You know, this is, there are so many benefits. It's the sense of safety that you have. The sense of being able to, yes, not have to be somebody. The sense of harmony with others, living in harmony with others. You can relax. There's some kind of relaxation that happens. You can pick up the thread of what is inside waiting for you, waiting for your mindful attention. You can connect more clearly and easily with what is going on inside of you. 
beneath all the chatter and the, the, you know, the busyness of your life. So this living of these training precepts on retreat is a way of aligning ourselves with the Dharma itself. The Dharma and Sila cannot be separated. They go together. So we are experiencing that when we are living this, when we are living the teachings of non-harming. If we are carelessly killing things, if we are taking what is not ours or intoxicating our minds through drugs or any other substance, we are giving over our thoughts and actions to greed, to aversion, or to delusion. They are in charge. Instead, on retreat, we are aligning ourselves with the teachings of Dharma and the intent of liberating wisdom and love. So the qualities of mind known as the paramis then have a chance to appear. They're not going to appear if you're out there you know, being intoxicated and, and, and stealing or just being careless. So this atmosphere of retreat is very conducive to the cultivation of these qualities of mind and heart. And tonight I'm going to talk about truthfulness. And in the Pali, the word for truthfulness is sacha, S-A-C-C-A. It is the quality of veracity or authenticity of character. It is being true to our deepest values, our deepest sense of who we are and what our purpose is. Its immediate expression is self-honesty and truthfulness in our communication with others. Tonight, I will focus mostly on these two aspects of truthfulness. It's longer-term expression, the payoff, you could say, of truthfulness is liberation. It is the basis of liberation. As Philip said this morning, each of these paramis is a very big subject, and each requires a significant degree of attention and commitment to explore. So this talk tonight is introductory. It will hopefully pique your curiosity to investigate truthfulness more thoroughly for yourself as part of your mindfulness practice, but it is certainly not the last word on the subject. Truthfulness is the very basis of mindfulness practice. Like, you cannot have mindfulness practice without being honest about what your experience is. In the mythology of the Buddha's many lifetimes of training, it is said that he never lied. He might have broken other ethical precepts or he wasn't perfect in all the paramis, but it is said that he never lied. Not lying to oneself or to others is the practice of truthfulness. And it's quite a chunk to uh, begin to contemplate and begin to work with. I like what Gil Fransdell wrote about truthfulness. I want to read you a few sentences of 
something he wrote. He said one of the primary characteristics of psychologically or spiritually mature people is that they never lie to themselves. Being honest with oneself is a prerequisite to personal growth and genuine liberation. This is so important that we can safely say that deceiving oneself is not acceptable. Serious practitioners strive to be impeccably honest with themselves. That's a high bar, but I think it's good to hear. Psychologically, it means we may need to do some work. We may need to look at our tendencies to deceive ourselves. It goes on a lot, you know, in human life. It goes on a lot in our culture. In our culture, our culture doesn't highly value truthfulness. Truthfulness may not have been practiced in your family of origin. Maybe people in your family were afraid to be truthful. If then, so they didn't model it to you. You didn't see people being truthful, or maybe you did. Maybe you saw a few people being very truthful and it really helped you or made an impression on you. There are all kinds of mixed messages that we receive in our lives about being truthful. Some of them that it's maybe, it, you know, it's dangerous to be truthful. Or it, forget it, it doesn't get you anywhere in this world. It will get you into trouble or no one will love you if you tell the truth. These are just a few of the beliefs we may have, you know, deep in our psyches about it's kind of risky to be truthful. Luckily for all of us, mindfulness gives us a kindly corrective to all of this. It helps us to begin to work with our confusion about truthfulness. Being honest about our experience is the basis of mindfulness practice. And as we practice, it begins to happen spontaneously. Quite spontaneously, what is true begins to reveal itself. There is an old saying that we repeat quite often in this insight meditation tradition that all self-knowledge begins with bad news. The bad news may be what we first notice when we turn our attention inward. Oh my goodness, I didn't realize how judgmental I am. I can't believe how judgmental I am. Oh my gosh, I'm a control freak. All I'm doing all day is planning, planning, planning. Oh, I thought I had dealt with this grief that I experienced last year, and now it's back. I thought I'd done with it. Or I see how I don't want to be bored. I want to feel good. I just, I don't like this sitting here. Any of this sound familiar? I hope so. This is the way we begin to see the patterns that rule our lives. Now, self-knowledge may also come at times with good news. Positive states of mind may spontaneously appear Surprising us, out of the blue. You come on retreat and you think, oh, this is going to be horrible. I know I'm just going to have all kinds of dukkha. I can feel it coming. And you sit down and you actually feel quite serene and content. 
or you think, oh my gosh, I'm going to be obsessed about my work, that's what's going on, but you sit down and instead you feel quite equanimous about it, quite fine, quite okay. Or you notice you're forgiving yourself when you mess up quite spontaneously. So you may have experiences that don't fit your ideas about what's going on, or who you are, or what you might expect. What do such experiences do to the stories you believe about yourself? What do we make of that when there's a, when our actual experience is different from what our stories are telling us? I often tell the story of my first experience of calmness. When I started practice, I had a lot of amazing, you know, things to work with. <laughs> I had a lot going on, so calmness, it just wasn't even an aspiration. You know, I thought practice was all about being, having all kinds of things to work on. But eventually things settled down and I began to feel like there was nothing happening. And I went to Joseph Goldstein, my teacher at the time, and he smiled and he said, Anna, this is calmness. And it was news to me. I had never thought of myself as a calm person. I didn't aspire to be a calm person. It wasn't on my radar, but there it was. So with Joseph's help, I began to work with it. I began to become familiar with it. I began to relax with it. It wasn't a problem. It was actually something of a resource, something that I could rest in, something that was there to help me. And it changed my view of who I was and what was going on. I began to think about myself differently. I felt more empowered to deal with difficulties when they arose. So when something similar happens to you, and it will, when your self-image and the reality of your experience seem quite different, this is a good point where it, is, it could be useful to speak with a teacher to help you sort it out. The Buddha described the excellent student. He said the excellent student is one who is honest about where he or she is, able to admit his or her faults. He said, whatever tricks or deceits or wiles or subterfuges he or she has, he shows them as they actually are to the teacher or to his knowledgeable companions in the holy life. That's all of you so that the teacher or his knowledgeable companions in the holy life can help her or him to straighten them out. In other words, he or she is honest about their character defects. Much as they are, much as they, they reminds me very much of AA, how that same teaching is present in that way of working to be honest about our limitations, our faults, our flaws. We are flawed human beings. That's okay, no problem. As long as we're honest about it and not trying to cover it up or deny it or, you know, convince somebody we're otherwise. So this kind of truth which the Buddha taught is not metaphysical, it is not philosophical 
but grounded very much in what can be experienced, what we are likely to notice when we pay attention. The Buddha said over and over, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. This is a primary truth of the Buddhist path, something anyone with interest can notice in their experience. Yes, there is suffering. Yes, sometimes there's no suffering. For example, we look inside, we may get in touch with an emotional reaction to something or someone, and we feel upset or we feel fearful. And that is one level of the truth of what is there. That is one level of being honest with ourselves. I feel afraid. That is what is present right now. Another level of the truth is that this reaction is a kind of suffering. So you might recognize this. This fear that I am feeling, oh, this is suffering. This is what the Buddha was talking about. This is suffering. The question then becomes, how do I practice with this feeling so that the suffering comes to an end or releases or diminishes? On the other side, you may experience a state of no suffering, out of nowhere, for no particular reason. You feel extremely happy, quite free, quite fine. What Nisargadatta, the Indian sage, called real happiness, which he said is best expressed negatively as, there is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. It is the experience of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. You might taste such an experience. You might have such an experience as a taste of the third noble truth the end of suffering. So mindfulness is this being honest about the truth of our experience, whether that experience is of emptiness and bliss and happiness or an experience of total frustration and despair and judgment. With mindfulness, we don't try to second-guess the experience or think, this should not be happening. This is wrong. No, we learn to trust the way our practice unfolds and open to it just as it is. This is where we start, just as the Buddha-to-be did. He investigated his body and mind in order to discover the truth of things. Don't find, we don't find images of the Buddha reading books or, you know, looking up something on his laptop or audio bubble, you know, things in his ears. He didn't have PowerPoint. All he had was what's right here for all of us, mind and body, 
So he sat upright, inwardly focusing on this direct experience in search of truth. And that is where he found what he was looking for. He found something that can actually only be found by looking within in a sustained way. Cannot be found anywhere else. It wasn't in a book. It wasn't in fulfilling relationships. It wasn't in a career or even in being a good person. He found it in the stillness and silence of his own mind-body process. So this is where we focus in our practice with the truth of our experience, learning to be at home with the truth of our experience, learning to trust the truth of our experience. Now, this is challenging, this is difficult to do for anybody, anywhere, anytime, but maybe particularly so in a culture which does not value truthfulness, this kind of truthfulness. What does our culture value? It values ambition, success, power, money, beauty, sexual attractiveness. They're not giving out a lot of awards for truthfulness that I'm aware of, maybe once in a while. The kind of truth in our culture which gets attention is that which is connected with, you know, sensationalism. Learn the truth about, you know, I don't know, Nick Nolte or somebody. Anybody, it doesn't matter who it is. The truth, you think, oh, there's some truth. Oh, boy, this is going to be good. Something salacious. Or truth is equated with facts. You know, our judicial system is based on discovering the facts. People testify in court to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But eyewitnesses, they try, but lately there's been a, they've been discredited. The memory of what happened and who did what to whom is not so reliable as they're discovering. It was a blue, what was a blue Ford turns out to be a green Chevy or the, what is now known as the Ra Rosh Rashomon, Rashomon effect, where different witnesses have different, whole different stories about what happened. Now with video recorders everywhere, politicians are caught lying. They're caught doing it, as are cable newscasters. So much so that Stephen Colbert coined the term truthiness. On his show in 2005, he, he, he brought forth this word, truthiness. He said, this, I'm going to read what he said. He said, and that brings us to tonight's word, truthiness. He says, now I'm sure some of the word police, the wordenistas over at Webster's are going to say, hey, that's not a word. Well, anybody who knows me knows that I'm no fan of dictionaries or reference books. They're elitist constantly telling us what is or isn't true, or what did or didn't happen. Who's Britannica to tell me the Panama Canal was finished in 1914 if I want to say it happened in 1941? That's my right. I don't trust books. They're all fact, no heart. Someone reporting on Colbert's show said he defined truthiness as truth that doesn't stand to be held back by fact. The word caught on, 
And last week, the American Dialect Society named truthiness the word of the year. I guess because it's so prevalent now. We live in this media-driven world where truthiness is often believed it to be the truth. So truth, in the Buddhist sense of the word, is an entirely different matter. Truth is one of the synonyms for the word dharma. Dharma is truth. And dharma practice is learning to align ourselves with truth in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. This is where it connects with sila, with non-harming. Sometimes the two truths are spoken about, and I'm just going to mention them because it can be useful to sort out the territory of what, what we're talking about. There, are, there is the relative truth, which is the conventional or consensus reality of me and you, and you're over there and I'm over here, and you have a name and you have a certain career, and so do I, and, and we, we, we live in the world and we, we operate in time and space, and all those kinds of truths. And that the relative truth includes the truth of the psychological, the feelings, the emotions, and the degree of self-honesty that we have about all that. Absolute truth is the truths that are universally true. The nature of reality, the truth of emptiness, impermanence, the truth of suffering and its cessation, the truth of nibbana, absolute truth, truth that is universally true, that is somewhat here but not always so apparent. A man named Philip Dick said this, my, this is one of my favorite descriptions of late, he said, reality is that which, when you stop believing it, doesn't go away. For example, impermanence. You might hear about impermanence and you might decide you're not going to believe in impermanence. Does that make it go away? No, it will reveal itself to you. The ultimate truths, like impermanence, emptiness, suffering, are not easy to let in. Why? Because they challenge all that the ego is so afraid of. Jennifer Wellwood wrote a beautiful poem called The Dakini Speaks. She says, my friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. This is the territory of Dharma, that which is universally present and true, whether we believe in it or not. Pessoa wrote this poem called I Lie Down in the Grass. I lie down in the grass and forget all I was taught. 
What I was taught never made me any warmer or cooler. What I was told exists never changed the shape of a thing. What I was made to see never touched my eyes. What was pointed out to me was never there. Only what was there was there. Our beliefs about reality are one thing, and reality is another. The Dharma is classically described in the suttas as that which is beyond words, concepts, or intellectual understanding, sometimes described as wordless truth. In the suttas, the Dharma is described as deep, hard to see, hard to realize, tranquil and refined, beyond conjecture, subtle, to be experienced by the wise. The wise value living in alignment with what is true, in thought, in word, in deed. So this includes being truthful with ourselves, with others. The Buddha lived with this deep motivation to be truthful. Do we? Do we live with that motivation? If we are truthful, our motivations are often quite mixed. The Buddha described the three types of people, the greedy types, the aversive types, and the deluded types. And you have probably heard this before. It is useful to know our type because we tend to distort the truth with our propensity. If I am a greed type, I will exaggerate the value of something I like or want. That's what greed does. It overvalues something it wants. So I may tell someone the thing I think will make them like me or impress them so that I may get what I want from them. If I am an aversive type, I will exaggerate the unpleasantness of something I don't like. That's what aversion does. It exaggerates this terrible thing. I may tell someone something that is motivated by a wish for their sympathy or their agreement about how bad or wrong something is. If I am a deluded type, I, will, I may be unable to identify what is going on? It will seem fuzzy. I may tell someone something kind of vague or undefined because I, I really don't know what, what they are expecting. Greed in the mind colors our view and our motivation. Aversion in the mind colors our view and our motivation. Delusion in the mind colors our view and our motivation. So there needs to be a very sincere intent to break through this to see through this, to be truthful. One needs to value being truthful and have confidence in it. Otherwise, greed will win, aversion will win, delusion will win. Those are our strongly held habits. So this is a story from the Jataka tales about um, that, as Philip mentioned, depict the previous lives of the Buddha and his... Uh, struggles to perfect these paramis. So this is a story I'll read. 
from the Jataka Tales. One is about a king who one day offered half of his kingdom in the hand of his daughter in marriage to any man who could steal something without anyone at all knowing. This announcement was proclaimed throughout the land, and many young men started showing up with various items. Somebody would come up and say, I have a, a ruby necklace that I stole. Nobody knows about it. And the king would say, no, sorry, forget it. Somebody else came up and said, I have an amazing chariot that I stole, and nobody knows. Again, the king said, sorry, forget it. Everybody got quite confused until one day a young man showed up with nothing. He said, I don't have anything at all. And the king said, well, why not? The man said, it is not really possible to steal something with absolutely nobody knowing about it because I myself would always know about it. This was the right answer. The king had been looking for an heir with wisdom. So it all begins with seeing the truth of our experience. And as we see more and more deeply, it changes our perception of the world and of our place in it and of who we are. It liberates us from our misperceptions, our deceptions, and realigns us with the truth of things. We see this externally in our world with scientific discoveries as, as when they were able to go to the moon and take pictures of the planet Earth. And for the first time, all of humanity could see where we live. We live in this little round green place in the middle of vast emptiness. That was the, an amazing shift in humanity's perception of itself. That's on the macro level. On the micro level, we have similar shifts in our perception when we see the truth of impermanence as we are sitting and noticing the arising and passing moment to moment of all aspects of the mind and the body that there's nothing here that can be held on to as me or mine. That is a major shift in perception. When we recognize the living, awake presence of who we are right here, right now, what John O'Donohue, the wonderful Irish poet, calls the mystery of being here, the quiet immensity of your own presence. We don't know how mysterious or immense until we give ourselves to that direct experience that he's pointing to. As our perception opens and we see more clearly, our character transforms. The truth becomes an ongoing living reality, becomes the most precious thing, really, that we have, the truth of our experience, so that what we think and say and do wants to be in harmony with our deepest sense of being. Now, this happens very slowly. It's not a weekend intensive, and not without much conscious effort and sincere aspiration. 
Many questions will arise and need to be investigated as we explore truthfulness. For example, how does truthfulness apply in my relationships? How does truthfulness relate to right livelihood? What about right speech? How to speak what is true in a timely and kind fashion? In what area of my life is more self-honesty or truth-telling needed? Where am I in denial? Where am I deceiving myself? How might I investigate these issues? What kind of support do I need to do this? You might need support. Luckily, the Dharma always supports us on the side of truth. Ajahn Lee, a monk, wrote this. He said, if we search for the truth like the Buddha, if we're true in our intent and true in what we do, there's no way the truth, there's no way the truth can escape us. That's good, isn't it? There's no way the truth can escape us if we are intent on opening ourselves to it, being true. So where do we begin? Listening to the Dharma, as you are doing now. And I know it's hard. It's the first night of the retreat. You're, you know, even your energy's a little sleepy. But listening to the Dharma with an open mind, testing the truth of what you hear in your experience, being interested in the truth, curious as to what you will discover through the power of your mindful awareness, Learning to value the truth. Devoting yourself to the truth. Surrendering to the truth. Trusting the truth to guide you. This is the journey into truthfulness. And it is a journey. You might consider which of these specific things I've mentioned might help you. So where does all this take us? Where does cultivating truthfulness lead? What is the ultimate power of truthfulness? How is it liberating? So I'm going to close with a poem by Harada Roshi that to me says it all. It's a poem he wrote called In This Passing Moment, and he dedicates it. He says, in the presence of Sangha, in the light of Dharma, in oneness with Buddha, May my path to complete enlightenment benefit everyone. And this is the poem. In this passing moment, karma ripens and all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. 
being with what is, I respond to what is. May all Buddhas and wise ones help me live this vow. So let's just sit together for a moment. In this passing moment, karma ripens and all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. May we all choose what is. Thank you for your attention. And we will now have a walking period for half an hour. 20 minutes we'll have a walking period until 8.50 and then we'll have our last sitting of the day. <laughs>